name is Michael Ring, and I'm the videographer here at the Phoenix Herpetological Sanctuary. I have been uh, with this facility for almost two years now, and uh, but I'm also a native to Scottsdale. I was born and raised here in the Sonoran Desert, and uh, just like a lot of my colleagues here, I really love the natural uh, ecosystem here in the Sonoran Desert, and then also all of the native herpetofauna. But yeah, I'll show you the front of our facility. We actually have one of our tours going on right now with our excellent educator, uh, Chelsea. She is she was a volunteer for several years before she started working here as an educator. So we have like a lot of long running um, faculty here who they you know they're it, it really is a small cohesive team uh, of educators and then also zookeepers. Our founders are very tactful business people as far as creating a facility that not only uh, you know has these animals here and we focus on the husbandry and the zoological side of it all, but additionally. You know, we really focus on outreach with the community and providing services to the community, whether that's, you know, kids coming for the summer camps, uh, people coming for private tours or public tours. We do venomous snake removal training. So our venom handler uh, facilitates all of that. And we're able to uh, have people come out and learn how to safely remove the venomous snakes that are very prevalent here in Arizona, of course. So. Uh, we have a lot of different services that we offer the community. We do uh, adoptions. So the animals that are brought in as surrendered pets, we also offer as pets that can be adopted out. And uh, we like to send them home with uh, more information about uh, these animals so they don't you know, wind up here again, of course. So we like to uh, be very uh, mindful about placing them with homes that can take care of them. Uh, so yeah, we wear a lot of hats on top of just being a sanctuary, on top of just being a zoological facility. And we are working on a lot of different things. We have a lot of different sticks in the fire right now. Like for instance, right now we're, uh, we're currently uh, awaiting a pending approval from the Indian uh, Zoological Authority in India to receive uh, the last two species of crocodilian that we currently don't have, the Indian gharial and the mugger croc. So once we have those animals, we will be only the second facility in the country to house all 24 species of crocodilian. There are currently only two mugger crocs in the United States, and we're importing six. That's the plan. Uh, we're importing six Indian gharial as well, and there's only 170 of those in captivity and maybe about 700 in the wild. So these are really, really high-profile endangered species that we are cooperating with the Species Survival Plan which is basically the overarching conservation program that um, keeps track of all of these different endangered animals here in the American Zoological Collection and makes decisions on you know, sending different specimens to different facilities so that we can increase the gene pool without having to bring in more animals from the wild. So we have so many cool projects going on. Uh, I know, for instance, right now, we have a Valentine's Day adoption event that's happening at the beginning of February. Um, we are going to a Cajun festival, Trace Rios festival. We're so busy right now. So, uh, you know, there's so many ways to interact with our sanctuary, with our facility. And, uh, you know, the best thing to do is uh, follow us on social media or check out our website. That's what we always advise people. But at the same time, just coming to visit is great. Whether you have kids and you want to sign them up for a private tour or uh, a summer camp, we're having our spring camp coming up soon. And then our summer camp registration is also open. 
so yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm I've given a good little exposition, but uh, if you like, I can formally kind of start a tour as far as you know uh, spatially where we are in the sanctuary. I think it's best to start at the front of the sanctuary. Is that all right with uh, with you, Tom? Yeah, let's go for it. Cool, but yeah. This is the front of our facility. We're tucked away in the middle of North Scottsdale. Funny enough, this facility was the childhood home of one of our founders, Dan Marchand. Uh, this used to just be out in the, at the outskirts of Northern Scottsdale. And uh, they built a zoo, kind of like uh, Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. I mean, it originally started, this facility started 24 years ago, uh, bringing in uh, pets that were no longer wanted by people in the in the local area. Uh, typically, it was iguanas. We actually really started with green iguanas because they were such a fad as far as people wanting them as an exotic pet, would-be exotic pet owners adopting iguanas without realizing that they become quite large. And especially with the males, they're incredibly hormonal, so they don't really make great pets, especially if you live in an apartment. So Dan became over-inundated with uh, iguanas. Funny enough, now our most surrendered animal at the facility is actually the African giant Salcata tortoise. So this wow. is the third largest species of tortoise on the planet. They're found in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, yeah, these guys can get easily up to 200 pounds. I'll show you one of them right here. This one's rather large. And this one isn't even one of our largest specimens. Uh, this, this pen that I'm standing in is just one of four pens that we have dedicated to this species. So, you know, we have almost 1,500 animals here at our facility, and 500 of those animals are this one species, the African wow. Salcata tortoise. So yeah, yeah. That, if that puts it into perspective. And as far as the bandwidth of our facility, not only are we caring for a collection of crocodilians, venomous snakes, all the other lizards and giant snakes like anacondas, but we also have to provide uh, almost 1,800 pounds of vegetation for these tortoises every week. Yeah. Wow. So we source huh. that through our community partners like Whole Foods and Costco. The local Whole Foods and Costco's allow us to take all of the unused produce that they weren't able to sell. And so three times a week, we have one of our team members drive a van and take a complete run. We call it the Greens Run to pick up all of that vegetation just to feed all of these tortoises. And like I said, this is just one of four enclosures that we have allocated to these tortoises. So a lot of bandwidth goes into these animals. Yeah. If you have it's any amazing. Questions? Yeah, it's amazing how much produce is kind of left over from some of these um, retail stores to be able to donate that much per week. Absolutely. I mean, collectively, I mean, it really does say something about food waste, but at the same time, it doesn't go to waste when our tortoises are eating it. They eat basically all of it. We have to sort it out. So we take stickers off of produce. We remove plastic wrapping and anything like that. But for the most part, the tortoises are able to eat a lot of it. So uh, we they chow down on uh, a lot of that food and we feed it out three times a week. Here's a little bit of promotional signage also, just thanking them. So yeah, like we're very grateful for those community partners. But yeah, and uh, when you consider the fact that our facility itself is just a little bit over two acres, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's uh, a lot of land 
is also allocated to the Salcata tortoises. So, you know, for us, a big part of our mission is reminding the local community and even, you know, people around the world. We try to reach people through our social media and we have a great dialogue as far as being a national authority on reptiles. And so we definitely like to remind people with our social media that you have to do your research before you get a pet, especially if it's an exotic pet, because um, a lot of times these animals are purchased as impulse buys and, you know, for a birthday present or something like that. And the funny thing is, there's a lot of tortoise species that are really great alternatives to Salcata tortoises that don't grow to the size of a cow, you know? Like we have Russian tortoises and all of these other tortoise species that also get brought to us as surrendered pets, not as much as the Salcata tortoises. But we like to remind people that with a little bit of research, you can make informed decisions uh, as a pet owner and pick the animals that you actually can accommodate for a lifetime, which these animals, you know, reptiles live very, very long, way longer than dogs. So, you know, with a tortoise, you're talking about a commitment that lasts over half of a century at least. So this is an animal you'll have to uh, write in your will to your kids or something yeah. like that. And we like to remind people that, you know, these aren't just commodities that are uh, bought and sold. And yeah, in fact, and I think that really brings us to the next great talking point, which is our crocodilians. Uh, these guys right here, I'm, I'm going to make sure you can see them. Can you see these guys? Yes. Cool. Yeah. These are Charlie and Lucy. They were actually the first crocodilians ever brought to our facility. Uh, they were brought to us uh, over a decade ago uh, when they were considerably smaller. And both of these alligators were actually uh, confiscated from someone, I believe, in Mesa. So here in Phoenix, had these two alligators in their backyard as illegal <laughs> pets. And uh, it was only when a nosy neighbor looked over the back wall and saw these two animals that, uh, you know, these they were apprehended and taken. Um, crocodilians are all illegal to own as pets in Arizona and then most states in the United States. And it's for good reason. They aren't good pets. Um, but still, people buy them. Sometimes they don't realize that they're illegal. Sometimes they buy them in states where they are legal and then they don't realize the laws and they transport them illegally into Arizona. There's a lot of ways they come here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, our facility, since I've started working here, I feel like we get at least like six crocodilians a year that are, you know, uh, confiscated from uh, by Game and Fish. So a lot of those are alligators. Alligators are typically one of the species that are taken in the most often. Um, but we also have a lot of other, like I said, we have 22 other species of crocodilian currently. So like one of them over here, if you can see, that's Brad. He is our adult male saltwater crocodile. He's somewhere around 13 feet long. And he lives in this enclosure with his mate, Angie, who's over there. Are you seeing what I'm showing you? I'm sorry, I only have the front facing camera. Sure am. Cool. And then if you see that mound over there, that's actually their nest. So Angie laid somewhere around 30 eggs this last summer. Wow. And uh, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, we did have, we had some hatch. They haven't made it to the facility yet. They're currently, you know, being reared up with our, uh, our uh, sanctuary's president, Russ Johnson. Actually, really funny. Here he is right here. Let's say hi to him. He's uh, cleaning out Yeti's enclosure. Hey, Russ, is there any way I can come in with you? Cool. Right now we're in a live podcast highlighting uh, local nonprofits. 
So I thought it'd be great to introduce Tom to you. This is uh, Russ Johnson, the president of our facility. How you doing, guys? Hey, Russ. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I, you can uh, see what the title of president gets you some really good perks, like cleaning out crock pens. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Exactly. I'd probably want to be in charge of social media instead. <laughs> I know. I have a pretty fun I'm, job. I'm, I'm not smart enough. You know, uh, yeah, it's living proof that you need to keep up with your education. Well, well, that just goes to show that whether you're the president of a nonprofit or a Fortune 500 company, you still got to get your hands dirty and you still got to get put in the work, right? I, I agree. You can't ask anybody to do a job that you haven't done or are not willing to do. Otherwise, how are you going to critique them? Yep, I get you. Well, this is great, Doyle. Um, I know Michael's showing us around. It looks like uh, this uh, the sanctuary that you guys uh, are running over there is, uh, one, very successful, uh, learning a lot of great facts. And uh, we're hoping to kind of uh, share share your sanctuary with more people and try and get some more uh, you know feet to come through the door and uh, more donations your way. Well, we appreciate that. You know, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, uh... We're competing with feathers and fur, and unfortunately, feathers and fur are menu items here, so uh, our animals don't exactly return love. But, it, it, you know, we have a lot of really good volunteers and a lot of good employees, and, you know, it takes a special mindset to work with animals like this, and, you know, to just know that you're taking care of them, and, and that's what's important. Yeah, it's amazing. So what I've seen so far in just a few minutes is uh, very inspirational, and uh, Michael's doing a great job kind of showing everybody around. Yeah, well, Mike, Michael uh, is a very creative individual, and uh, mm -hmm. he comes up with some really neat ideas, things that I never think of, so he kind of runs with the ball on that one. <laughs> nice. Well, Thanks, well, Russ. Yeah. It was great meeting you. Um, and, you. Thank, uh, you for, thank you for your time. You got it. Anytime. Okay, we'll see you later. Thank you, Russ. Yep. Yeah, and while we're here... This is uh, who Russ is cleaning for. That is our largest animal on property. That is Yeti. He is the American crocodile. So that species can be found here in Florida, funny enough, and uh, also in Mexico. Oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> During the winter, our crocodilians are a lot more placid. So uh, Russ is able to be somewhat more cavalier than usual. Yeah. So, Michael, I was just going to ask how... Um, is Michael in the same um, captivity, I guess, as as the crocodile and uh, not like scared for his life? <laughs> I know, right? Isn't that funny? Yeah, we uh, we're there's something wrong with our heads. We have a we have a cohesive team of people who, you know, it's interesting because uh, we I, can pass a drug test. Yes, we that's right. That's right. That's required. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I thought about this. We actually took a tour at the facility of Arizona, which is up in northern uh, Arizona. And we spoke with our educator team, got to meet some wolf keepers and some bear keepers. And it was funny because it just kind of gave me pause and made me realize, you know, uh, we have a lot of specific intuitive knowledge when it comes to uh, reptiles. But that's just something that comes with the territory of sharing proximity with these animals for so long. You learn how to anticipate behavior and you know what you're looking at. And, you know, not to say we ever push the envelope. We never make a practice of that. But, uh, you know, 
we it's important to have that kind of intuitive knowledge. I mean, it comes in handy all the time here. Remember my video on moving a crock and yep. what not to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, Russ had a, I mean, Russ is very good at what he's doing. It's funny because he, he's giving me credit. And uh, I honestly, um, a big part of portraying this place on social media has been showing off our cast of characters. Because, you know, reptile people, just like the animals we work with, they are a little bit misunderstood. And I think a great part of our facility is that we're basically a uh, meeting place. We're a platform for reptile people to kind of revel in our collective love of these animals and share in that. And that's one of the really rewarding parts of working here. That's one of the really rewarding parts of having this dialogue with the people who come and visit us is, you know, um, showing them, I mean, having the, all of this content where people are able to see firsthand and vicariously experience our love of these animals, uh, our understanding of these animals and empower people to care about their preservation, uh, become more educated on their conservation in the wild. And, you know, at a more pure and basal level, just like um, bringing people joy, honestly, bringing people joy. Because that's what these animals bring us is every day. It's, it's really a blessing to work at a place like this where uh, you have so many phenomenal animals. I mean, right now, Russ is now in uh, Nessie's enclosure. This is Nessie. She is the oldest black caiman uh, in captivity in the United States. In the world, okay. So the stud, what stud books confirmed that? Was that the German? There you go. So Nessie, according to uh, German stud books, but you know those are pretty standard for uh, you know across the globe. That these, this is typically like how people archive that knowledge as far as uh, who's the oldest when it comes to these kind of animals. But yeah, Nessie, our black caiman. She also came with um, grandma right here. She's a false gharial. This is a species of crocodile from Malaysia. Um, and both of these animals are the oldest of their species. So, wow. and, and I believe, Russ, if I'm not mistaken, there are less than 20 black caiman in the United States. Uh, I think there's only 14 uh, that uh, Yeah, so as far as, yeah. Wow. So over half of the black caimans in the United States, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the federal authority on this, are here at PHS. So we're just nestled in the middle of northern Scottsdale. It, it might be unassuming to other some people. It, it feels like Jurassic Park to us. <laughs> uh, but when you come and visit this place, you're seeing a lot of animals that you're not going to see at facilities that are world-class zoos. You know, like... We have, a, we have a very considerably large collection of these animals. And it's, for us, it's, uh, yeah, it really, it, it becomes a resource where people who really care about reptiles, this is a mecca for them. People make pilgrimages here, you know, and just to see the facility, check it out, feel the energy. And that's what we want to cultivate. Because, you know, I think, uh, obviously, you've worked with so many different nonprofits and, over the last decade, social media has become a complete paradigm for how nonprofits operate, how they connect with new audiences, how they make money. So for us, we have over two decades of history here in the Valley working with these animals. Yeah, unbelievable stories that you, you honestly couldn't believe unless you saw the pictures. 
And so a big part of my role and why I was hired on is that, you know, now we can connect people with the facility in ways that we've never been able to do before. So with some of these um, reptiles that are from other countries where you have like one of just a few that are left in the world, how are they coming to you? Were they originally somehow brought into uh, with somebody else in the United States and then you guys kind of rescued them or uh, did they come straight from these other countries straight to your uh, sanctuary? So that's a great question. And there's a lot of different answers for the most part. If I'm not mistaken, for the most part, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I don't believe we have ever imported an animal or at least a crocodilian from the wild. We, we don't really make a practice of doing that. Uh, I know with the Orinoco crocodile, like this one right here, this is an endangered species. They're uh, found in uh, the Orinoco River Basin in Venezuela. They're actually the fourth largest species of crocodile. Super cool. We had three of them and we were cooperating with the Dallas World Aquarium. Um with their species survival plan. So they are one of the main members for the Orinoco crocodile breeding project, but we have two of their crocodiles on loan and we're cooperating with them. So we're kind of like a facility where their extra crocodiles can go and we can breed them. And then the offspring are sent to them because they're working with the, the uh, SSP. Another good example are our Morlets crocodiles. Uh, this is Morticia. She's our female Morlets crocodile. Every year she produces well over, you know, 30, 40 eggs. This was her mound nest right here. Um, I don't think you can, you can kind of see him. That's Morty. So Morty is the mm-hmm. male paired up with Morticia. And Morty was uh, lended to us from another facility. Another good example are uh, New Guinea crocs. They are also a endangered species that we have a species survival plan project for. So typically when we get these high profile endangered crocodilians, they are um, the the more high profile endangered species. For the most part, we're getting from other zoological facilities to be a part of the SSP, the the species survival plan for them. There are a couple that I think we have done special import permits for. I know Russ has. Actually, he's here right now. Uh, I know for an for a fact that these uh, these two false gharial came from Malaysia. Malaysia Russ, yeah, yeah. Jong's, uh, Johnson Jong's crocodile farm. This one and the two smaller. Ones. There you go. And, and the um, black caiman back there came from Denmark, uh, the Alborg Zoo. Yeah. And then um, the uh, slender snouted came from South Africa when a um, uh, conservation park was closing down, and they were going to put the animals down. So we actually uh, brought one or two of them. And that was Rodney. Yeah, Rodney and then female, but the female uh, died of an egg embolism. Oh, she yeah. was trying to do that, so unfortunately yeah. we lost her. There's nothing you can do. No. But you gave her a chance. She would have been yeah. euthanized. Oh, yeah. And that's the same thing with Grandma. I mean, yeah. Grandma and Nessie. Grandma and Nessie were sent here to die in 2015. Yeah. And you can see they're wow. flourishing. So they're doing really wow. well. But we so changed the diet and we changed their environment. Uh, they weren't heating the water. It was back south. So the water was pretty cold uh, for... For that species and um, we changed it um, an awful lot and when grandma came here she had one tooth and in the summer because she had very little calcium diet in the summer we've actually got it to where she generated up to 13 teeth and then you know because she eats a lot more calcium and things like that and then in the winter she usually goes down to one to four teeth you know but uh, she was very um, deficient on a, on a number of the nutrients possible but we changed her whole diet 
and made her uh, much more successful and their body weight and everything else was great. But Dan and I actually drove or flew to Florida and, and rented a truck and loaded them up in a, a U-Haul and carried them back because they were too big to put on a plane. So, <laughs> and you yeah. said that they came to you in 2015 and you- 2013. 2013. And yeah. basically they came to you to die. And yeah, still- they, they, when, when, they, uh, when Dan and I made application to get these with the, with the zoo that was closing down, there was a lot of competition. One of their stipulations is they had to be kept separate because of their age. They figured being put in with another animal would stress them and basically shorten the lifespan. But they figured they were at end of life. And then um, when Dan and I got Nessie here, the black caiman, her spine went down and out, which means she wasn't very fat. And if you take a look, her, her whole uh, physical uh, stature has changed dramatically. Uh, she eats great and things like this. So, you know, just the change of, of diet and then uh, the winter situation uh, has made a dramatic different, uh, difference on both of them. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, get, you can only get so much from books and the rest of it you've got to do with working with these yeah. animals. So That's they right. each have, yeah. you, know, you can pick up so much, but um, you'd be surprised how many idiosyncrasies these things have that haven't been studied or yep. seen because in the wild, you're not going to be looking at them 24 hours, seven days a week, you know? Also <laughs> across species. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The commonality. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So we've been fortunate there. We, we changed it an awful lot and, and they have uh, responded well. Yeah. Great. There go. So I, I figure Nessie and Graham are going to outlive me, but then again, I'm the oldest guy here. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and then uh, uh, when I'm in the pens, unfortunately, like today, you know, uh, it's a winter, so they're slow. But in the summer, I try to keep somebody in the pen with me. But unfortunately, not too many people are slower than me. So I'm still in trouble. <laughs> well, you're good with a stick. Okay, uh, okay good. Yep. Right. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And, and just uh, and also just a quick question, since that was what we were talking about. For, for the most part, the only crocodilians that are that are confiscations are going to be American alligators and then. Oh, I guess we, we have those we have, caimans. We have we have some caimans, yeah. and we have common caimans, and then also some uh, couple of Nile crocodiles. Uh, you can buy them from some states uh, if you if you're a resident, and so they say they're a resident, and they pick up a baby Nile. And I'll be honest with you, there's some um, unscrupulous uh, people that uh, even though it's against animals. the law, yeah. to sell them across state line unless you have a CBW um, that will do it anyhow. So. And then the police come in and we're fully restricted state. So there's no crocodilians that are legal in the state of Arizona. And that has to do with uh, something that happened way back in the 70s with an alligator farm out at Mesa. And they walked away and alligators were in the canals and stuff. Wow. Like that. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. See, Russ is a wealth of information, you know. And I, I always figure out the oops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Russ is a huge part of why we are able to import a lot of these animals. The whole Gariel Mugger Croc project that I was explaining to you earlier, you has been facilitating that for the last seven years. Seven and a half years. Seven and a half. It worked with them, and the, um, it took quite a while to get it through the Indian government. Now we finally got our permit from the U.S. government, but it took so long that the Indian export permit has expired, so we've got to get them to renew it, and they weren't willing to renew it if, if it wasn't going to be, if we weren't going to get the uh, permit, which we've done. We sent it to them, so hopefully that uh, uh, mitigates that situation since they've approved pre- previously approved it. But in the Indian government, you have to get a pro- approval from four different branches, so wow. you know, it, it's, a, it's a time-consuming uh, situation. Wow. And so, yeah. you know, we're getting ready to start construction on the pen. So, you know, I'm really hoping that we have this by 
this summer or this fall and can bring these in. Yeah. That's yeah, great. hopefully. And we, we're working big on a, on a marketing campaign for that as well. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we hope that this podcast, we, you know, us talking about it can pick up some uh, traction for that. Well, it's a, it's a $135,000 project. So, you know, wow. for a nonprofit, you know, that, that's a, a pretty good bite. So, and, and yeah. Dan and I um, were able to do a, a number of the labor part and installation parts ourselves, which cuts our construction bill down. But there are just certain things we can't, we can't do or, or it's just so massive that we couldn't get it completed properly. Gotcha. Hmm. Wonderful. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, Michael, talked thank earlier. Thank you. Um, so, Michael, we, you were showing earlier uh, you have a group of tourists kind of walking through or guests. Yeah. Um, how many people kind of come through the sanctuary every year? Every year? I can get that exact number. One second. Hi, Dan. Sure. Really quick, if you don't mind, this is this is Dan Marchand. This is who I was explaining earlier. This is his childhood home. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Yeah. Hey, yeah. thanks for for letting us uh, kind of um, you know crash your your sanctuary here and kind of share it with the world. Fine, we love doing it. Nice. Yeah. yeah. What, what Michael's showing so far, I met Russ. He seems like a great guy. Um, everybody seems very passionate about what they're doing, and it seems like you're doing a lot of great work there. Yeah. Try hard. Yeah. I mean, Dan, uh, on top of. On top of being an authority on, you know, crocodilians and all the other animals here and tortoises, uh, I would say that one of Dan's other skills is that he's basically a carpenter. So, you know, like Russ was explaining, you know, between the two of you guys, you've been able to really create a facility that not only accommodates all these animals, but also all the guests, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Everything you see we built, I built. Yeah. With some help. Yeah. Very cool. But yeah, I can find you when we're done with the podcast. Yeah. 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 Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Cool. And then I'm sorry, what were you asking? Uh, the number About of people. Sure, how many people come here? Yeah. yeah, I actually, you know what? I'll go into the office and I'll ask our office administrator because, uh, you know, I could give you a basic ballpark number. But actually, the really funny thing is that uh, in this last year, since we've made a lot of changes, our staff has changed. Um, just the way we run things has changed, you know. For the majority of the time PHS has been around, we have only had maybe four staff members and then an army of volunteers. So we just recently started actually, you know, employing educators, employing keepers, all of that. Oh, perfect. Oh, yeah, for Super Bowl. Uh, Isabel, really quick question. Uh, Tom was curious, how many people, oh, by the way, this is Isabel. She is our education administrator. Yeah. She was, uh, Tom was curious, how many people did we have visit PHS in 2023? In 2023, you know what? I can pull up the report right now. If I you have like a basic ball, yeah, I don't need, I don't mean to bog you down. We're just curious. So for 2023, we did eight, over 1,800 on-site programs, which is a ton. Um, and we had over... 20,000 people come visit us here. Um, for offsite, we did around like 600 offsite programs and reached over 100,000 people. So, uh, wow. we've reached yeah. a lot of programs. And then, when you consider the fact an onsite program could be anything from a venom training that has what, 15 people in it? Yeah, so we'll train people how to like remove 
um, like a rattlesnake or something that they find on their property or backyard or at a workplace. That way they feel comfortable and safe moving that animal. And, you know, both the animal and people are safe in that situation. And then as far as other on-site programs, would that include summer camps? Yeah. Yeah. So camps, tours, you know, every, any, anything that we would do here. So that's 800 on-site programs that could have as many as like 30 people. 1,800. 1800 sorry my bad no that was that was uh 600 off-site events and that includes like sacramento expo reptile expos across i mean we do sacramento show and the tucson reptile expo and you know so as far as our outreach and actually getting our animals and our people in front of people's faces uh you know we are super taxable and we have a lot of different strategies as far as you know um engaging people and we one of the things i love as far as feedback in our in my position and you know the rest of us too we love hearing people talking about how they flew across the country uh and got an airbnb for a week so that their kid could go to reptile camp or you know all the time we'll hear like people are like yeah we found out about you guys on social media and we came out to phoenix and we just had to visit and that's one of the really cool things is that, um, you know, now we're reaching people beyond Phoenix, which when you're a local nonprofit, that's, I mean, obviously you start with your own geographic, uh, and demographics that, I mean, obviously we have to, you have to be strategic as far as picking the demographics you're going to target. You want to target people that are practical as far as making conversions, you know, uh, you want to target people who would actually want to come out on a tour or want to, you know, schedule a snake training or call us to remove a rattlesnake. But the cool thing is that, you know, accessory to that, we've gotten to the place where now we're engaging people around the country and, you know, uh, people from other countries. We get people from other countries all the time. In fact, when uh, last summer, when the crocodile transfer, it was published by some local news you know agencies in india and for two or three months i was noticing that a good have half to a fourth of our traffic was coming from india so you know uh we're getting international recognition for some of the work we're doing and we have done that in the past as well i mean as far as national news uh I'll show you him in a second, Clem the alligator. I, I, we walked past him. He was uh, rescued from Pacoon Springs in northern Arizona out of a creek. And that got us on national news. We had an alligator named Mr. Stubbs who unfortunately lost his tail uh, due to you know neglect from his previous owners. And when we received him, we teamed up with Midwest University to give him a prosthetic tail. And that was something that got us you know, national recognition. It was the first time that a, a animal like that had been given a prosthetic of that type. And uh, unfortunately, Mr. Stubbs died in, gosh, 2022 in the fall. Um, but I mean, that's the other thing. Like I said, you know, we've had animals that it's the stories and animals in particular that you wouldn't be able to believe the stories unless you saw them in person. Uh, we have some, yeah, some animals with a lot of character and a lot of history behind them. And I think one of my favorite parts of this role as well is that uh, really unbelievable stuff happens every day. I mean, just yesterday we drove down to Delta Cargo to pick up two rhino vipers that came in the mail. Um, you know, I could I could just list off a, a bunch of different 
things like when we went to sacramento show we had a green mamba given to us in a box anonymously like a little wooden box and it had a green mamba and this is a snake that in the wild if it i mean in captivity too obviously we have the anti-venom and we're very tactful as far as how we handled it and you know use precaution and whatnot but that's an animal that in theory if it bit you and you didn't have access to anti-venom you would have maybe 30 minutes before your lungs turn off so uh so yeah it's unbelievable stuff happens all the time as far as new animals being brought in uh current animals being shipped out things give birth you know right sometimes you come in and it's like oh the crocodile laid 37 eggs and then like two months later you know russ is sending us videos on our phone of all the little babies hatching so you know it's it is really magical here and there is a seasonality you know you do it is kind of like living on a farm in the sense that we do have the breeding projects and you know like with the crocodiles especially you know there's the time of the year where you know it's mating season and all of the endangered species are breeding and then later we have the the eggs and um I think, um, you know, for us, that is another service we offer to, I would say, conservation in general is that, you know, by producing these uh, species that really aren't being produced in captivity here in the United States, we're able to send them to other zoological facilities where they become a part of their collection and more people can learn about them. Uh, That, you know, in addition to just the purely like SSP projects where we're breeding animals to have more numbers. but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is a really, really incredible place to come and visit. And I think that energy becomes really apparent when you come here. You know, everyone's everyone's having a good time. That's one of my favorite parts of this place. Well, I can also it also seems like you're all living on the edge. You have uh, venomous snakes in wooden boxes uh-huh. that jump out at any time. Russ That's is right. in with the alligators cleaning out their their pools. Yeah. Um, you never know what might happen. Uh, that's it seems right. like, uh, you're always on the edge of your seat, so that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, one of our less threatening animals is uh, what, our capybara tater tot. Super. Uh, cool. Yeah. World's largest rodent. <laughs> These guys uh, came to our facility in the summer of 2022. Uh, we have another one, his brother, uh, Spud, which he's in his back enclosure currently but we have tater tot up here because he's going to be participating in a uh it we have capybara experiences so it's one of our special uh it's an addition that you can add on to a private tour so that you can meet our capybaras and feed them some lettuce so uh people have been really enjoying that it's kind of funny people are always surprised when they learn that a reptile sanctuary has mammals we have uh oh you know what I was just back there, but I'll go back because you got to see Mr. Chow. Mr. Chow is our Asian small clawed otter, and he is, uh, I would say, he's our most beloved animal. The capybaras have become really popular. I would say even more popular than Mr. Chow as far as our social media. But, you know, Mr. Chow has been around. Uh, You know what? I think he's sleeping under his blanket. Maybe he'll be out later. But, yeah, we do have a couple mammals. We have some kinkajous in here which that's a species of, uh, they're closely related to raccoons, but they look like monkeys. They're really, really interesting animals. And uh, then also we have our raccoon, Nico, who he is a very sweet guy. He's just chilling out in his little house. So yeah, you know, there's a variety here. It isn't just the, uh, it isn't just the mammals. Um, 
Also, we have giant tortoises. In addition to the salcatas, we actually have the two largest species of tortoise. So in this backyard, we have uh, Aldabra and Galapagos tortoises. So the two largest species on Earth. And then the third largest species being the salcata. That's the one we have 500 of. But uh, yeah. Now the salcata tortoise, how, how come you have so many of those? Is, is that like native to the Arizona area or... Yeah, no, so they're actually from Africa. They, uh, they're an African species. And just kind of like what I was explaining earlier with the iguanas back in the uh, 90s and 80s, the salcatas have just become a big fad. Like, look at how many we have here. This is uh, yeah. one of our main pens. And, you know, we have to allocate, a, I mean, <laughs> one of the reasons they make really bad pets is because they will, they're incredible burrowers. So they make these huge manhole sized craters in the ground. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the, we have to collapse them just because we don't want them to collapse while there are tortoises inside of the burrows. So we collapse the, the burrows for them if we're nervous about them caving in. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many people buy them as babies and uh, you know they'll cost somewhere around like $50 as a baby and they'll be the size of like a silver dollar. They look basically indistinguishable from all the other species of, or a lot of other species of tortoises look exactly like a baby salcata tortoise when they're babies. Like even our native desert tortoise here in Arizona, we have, they look a lot like salcatas when they're babies. People get them mixed up all the time. So as a result, people buy them, think they're a good pet. And within like eight years, it's a really, it gets to be a big sizable animal. I mean, you know, I would say that, uh, it's going to take maybe 15 years for it to get super big, but it's still going to be a big animal for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's such a time commitment too for, for uh, a tortoise, I would think, uh, yeah. especially when you're most likely it's probably your kids that want it, right? When it's a baby turtle. Exactly. And get older. They're like, it's kind of like when, uh, like my kids want a dog. Yes. And they said they're going to take him out, take the dog and walk him every day and feed him every day. But, you know, a week into the dog, you know, mom and dad are going to be doing all of the work. Yep. So, um, And I mean, I and honestly speaking, I think as far as kids go, I mean, there are different kinds of kids, but I feel like a dog's even more engaging than a tortoise. I can see like most kids right. getting tired with, of, you know, getting, I find, I mean, they aren't my, like, I don't find them to be the most exciting animal. I like them. You know, they're very gentle, sweet animals. They are personable and uh, funny. You know, they're very sweet animals. But, you know, I could see why it just isn't a great idea to buy. You know, you got to be pretty sure you want to buy a century, you know, an animal that's going to live a century and yeah. grow to be 200 pounds and it's going to eat all of this veg uh, vegetation. I have seen people do it right. I, I know plenty of people that they have kept salcatas and, uh, you know, it's not a problem. Typically, one thing I always find is like, if you have grass, if you actually have a grass lawn, keeping a salcata is way easier because naturally they are grazers. So it really subsidizes the cost of feeding them. And additionally, they'll just basically mow your lawn. It's like having a goat, you know? The only thing is that the goat will also dig manholes in your lawn and like dig under your shed and like whatnot. But uh, yeah, I mean, they aren't the best pet. And that's a big part of this facility. Reptiles, there's such a funny overlap between, in the reptile world, there's such a funny overlap between pets and zoo animals. You know? Like, there's 
a lot of pets that are also basically zoo animals and there's a lot of zoo animals that people try to keep as pets so there is this really interesting overlap where like we have animals here that definitely you know are aren't even in that many zoos but for some reason some guy was keeping it as a pet you know and uh i think the i think even more so than the salcadas is i mean it goes without saying venomous snakes are not great pets neither are crocodilians you know that neither of them make good pets uh there's a lot of liability involved in having a, a pet venomous snake you know uh you don't want to have one in your apartment and your landlord figure out about it and you don't want it to get out you know god forbid yeah. so um yeah. but it happens and people i think that's one of the things people are always so surprised when they meet us and they come to our facility and they're like man do people i get that question all the time do people really want to buy these things or like why do people want to buy these things and like i would be lying if i was to say i don't see why people buy them you know they're gorgeous they're exciting they're cool you know people think oh i'll be so cool if i have a pet alligator or like you know i can i'll build a pond for it you know that's the thing people always put the horse before the cart you know like you li you're living in a in a studio and you're like i'll buy a baby alligator and then in five years i'll have a house for it and you know the thing is is that it just doesn't always work out that way and um i don't know so yeah it's one thing i will say and i talked to i talked to kale about this recently who kale's our venom manager here he was explaining to me that we are we have been seeing that we are getting less venomous snakes as far as uh as far as uh, seizures. So I think that means people are starting to learn. Yes. You know, they're starting to learn that there are repercussions as far as like legal repercussions. And maybe they're even, maybe our message is getting out and people are, you know, learning that, okay, maybe this is something we should leave to the zoos, you know, as opposed to trying to keep a cobra in our house or something like that. So, you know, I mean, it's good to know that, uh, it's good to know that there aren't animals winding up in these situations because something we've also seen is that in a lot of instances when people are keeping animals that they don't necessarily have the capacity to take care of they won't and they try to hide it especially if it's illegal so you know we've had instances where animals come into us that they you know we've unfortunately we're involved we get involved in a lot of court cases you know as far as being the facility where, you know, someone gets arrested for animal neglect and they had a bunch of animals that were basically, you know, being neglected and, and dying and uh, they come to us and we have to look after them and care for them in the meantime. And we can't even mention them on social media because it's a part of the, the court case. So, um, yeah, wow. we get involved in stuff like that all the time. And something that we see is that in a lot of instances, you know, people aren't taking care of those animals uh, correctly. So yeah, it goes without saying, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if our venom manager is here. I, he might be out and if he is, that's okay. We'll just have a look at some of the venomous snakes here in the hall. Uh, yeah. we have, we have a lot of really cool venomous snakes here. If I'm not mistaken, we have somewhere around 80 species of venomous snakes and maybe somewhere around 200 individuals. Uh, so yeah, right here, I mean, we'll just get started with it, right? We have a bunch of cobras. So for instance, here's a monocled cobra. Yeah, gorgeous snake. And I, if I'm not mistaken, this one was a seizure. So this one actually was brought in as an illegal seizure. This is a green mamba. 
which it wasn't the Green Mamba brought to us in the box. You'll see that one in a second. This is an Eastern Green Mamba. Let's see. We got a Habu Viper. There's a Black Mamba to match up with that Green Mamba. This is Cruella. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah. And this is Buffy. She is our big Gaboon Viper. So she is a, she's actually, this is the largest species of viper in Africa, and they have the longest fangs of any snake. So they can get up to two inches long. Just huge fangs. Uh, and then that's Angel in the back. That's her new mate. We actually just, this is a Terstiopello. So this is a species of uh, Central American viper. They are also huge. They're responsible for the most venomous snake bites in the new world. But I think that also has to do with the fact that they're so prevalent, you know, like there's so many of them, they don't really mind human uh, humans in their area. Um, so, you know, it, it, work, it works out that way where people get bitten by them more often because they're encountering them more often. Um, right here, this one's a really cool snake. This is actually a hybrid. So this, uh, this is a hybrid of two native rattlesnake species. It's half Western Diamondback, half Mojave rattlesnake. And um, really, the only reason we had this snake was it was in a serpentarium at a local community college. And the, the professor who was there who was taking care of the animals uh, retired. And so, the, you know, he didn't want to take care of them anymore. So they... Like, uh, not <laughs> and the thing was, is that at the end of the day, I'm sure that that, per, you know, uh, from what I understand, that person was, a per, you know, a uh, mindful professional and they were just, you know, they went through the due process of finding another facility that could care for these animals. And for us, we got this really cool hybrid. So and actually, interestingly enough, we had a venom toxicologist come in uh, who used to volunteer with us and uh, they he collected venom from this snake. And uh, they did an analysis of the snake's venom and found that it had components of both Western Diamondback and Mojave rattlesnake venom. So, hmm. yeah, we we don't double milk whammy. rattlesnake. We don't milk. Oh, sorry, what's that? A double whammy. Yeah, sure. double whammy. I mean, that's a cocktail for sure. Yeah. That's a cocktail of all kinds of toxins, you know. Um, but, yeah, we don't milk snakes here. That's another question we get a lot with all of our snakes. We don't milk snakes. Um, we, but snakes have been melt here. Uh, researchers have come through who are professionals who know what they're doing. And, you know, maybe we have a snake that they really want to research the venom of. And, you know, uh, in those instances, we've had, uh, professional toxicologists, uh, melt snakes here that belong to us and then take those venom samples. And that's how, for instance, we got the, the analysis of that snake's venom. But we don't milk any snakes. We are the largest anti-venom uh, repository outside of Florida, basically. I mean, mm -hmm. on this side of the Mississippi, we yeah. have got a lot of venom, or anti-venom, that is. And uh, for us, you know, we need that anti-venom for our animals, for our venomous snakes and our staff in the instance that someone bit, God forbid. Um, yeah. But then additionally, we also... Uh, provide anti-venom to other zoological facilities. So other zoological facilities in the valley are able to basically sign up to our venom uh, supply service where in the instance that they need this venom, uh, we can provide it to them. So it's uh, just another function of our facility that allows us to make money. I mean, once again, 
it's and it all goes back into the animals is the is the crazy thing is like there's so much going on and and money coming from different places whether it's our programs or the tours or donations or even just selling stuff in the gift shop uh but and and the snake relocations all kinds of stuff selling um you know it 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 all comes in from different places but at the end of the day it all goes towards the animals it all goes towards making this place run um so that's one of my favorite parts about phs is that it uh doesn't rely too heavily on one thing uh we have so many different uh things going on as far as how we make ourselves sustainable i think uh if kale was here i would you know he could talk for himself but another thing that i'm actually quite interested about another uh, service we're going to be offering people quite soon is our uh, lead venom manager uh kale he is going to be uh i mean he has been uh implanting telemetry tracking devices into rattlesnakes that come to our facility so you know when we get rattlesnakes that are wild that you know slither into our property kale uh implants uh telemetry tracking devices and pit tags in those snakes and he paints the tail the rattles basically so they're you know they can be distinguished and he's put them out into the field like the uh, vacant area near us to track them to basically uh, learn more. I mean, it's, it's providing really invaluable insight as far as rattlesnake behavior, uh, how, how they're choosing the places they're denning, you know, all kinds of insights. And honestly, talking to him, it's been a real wealth of information. And he actually writes a newsletter update. So he, he updates uh, high-level donors for his project. He keeps them updated on the rattlesnake's behavior. They all have names. Um, but something really cool that he's planning on carting out soon is actual guided night hikes where people can sign on to go on a guided night hike with kale while he telemetry tracks the rattlesnakes so go rattlesnake tracking with a venom expert so i don't know we have all kinds That's of cool things we're planning yeah sorry was that this is that was amazing i mean it sounds like a like a fun um workshop or um uh, what would you call that just group uh, basically yeah like a workshop yeah yeah and I mean, me as the videographer and photographer, I, I'm trying to organize a photography workshops uh, soon, you know, for like macro flash photography. So, you know, when you have the animals and the and the passion, that's the thing is that we have so many team members that do different things. Like our, our lead keeper is a very accomplished artist. So he created all of the promotional art for the Gariel Muggercroc campaign. Uh, you know, it's it is really cool, the overlap. Um, I mean, Dan and uh, Debbie, our, our vice president, who is Dan's uh, wife, they uh, they also run OHV events. And, you know, so as a result of that, they, you know, there's a lot of know-how as far as vehicles, which is helpful because when you're moving a zoo across the country to Sacramento every year, we typically blow out a tire or like break an axle or something. Yeah. So it's good that everyone has a lot of knowledge outside of the reptiles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, Michael, I know uh, we're coming up on time here. This yeah. has been such an amazing experience to learn about the sanctuary. Um, how can people find uh, more information? What's your uh, preferred social media channel? And what's the best way of people to get in touch? Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking, Tom. So um, we are on basically all social media platforms for the most part. Um, 
primarily we i mean you can get different stuff from different platforms i would say that instagram and uh instagram is probably one of the best places to follow us but our tiktok is also huge we have 1.1 million followers on tiktok so uh that's a great place to stay updated on all of our videos but uh as far as like updates on all of our events and uh, stuff going on in our facility in addition to the videos instagram and facebook are awesome Additionally, I would say that if you're really interested in learning more about the facility, checking out our YouTube channel is awesome because we, uh, we actually post long form videos, just kind of showing all the stuff that goes on here at the facility. Um, so that's, I would say that those are the three best accounts to kind of keep up to date with us. I mean, we're on, you know, Twitter, we're on everything for the most part. Uh, but yeah, follow us wherever you use your social media. Additionally, uh, you can go to our website, phoenixherp.com, to learn more about all of our different services that I've brought up in this interview and, you know, um, scheduling a tour, scheduling adoptions, all of that can be accomplished through our website. Um, so, yeah, that's the best way to stay up to date with us, social media and our website. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael. We'll make sure to include links in uh, the bio of, of everywhere that we post uh, this so that people can easily click and uh, follow you on social media, come to your website, learn more about you. And uh, next time I am in Arizona, I will be stopping by. Uh, wow, hopefully yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I just want to bring my kids there. It sounds like oh, this yeah. would be amazing. I probably won't let my son in with Russ into the alligator uh, cage to clean the thing, but maybe we'll stay on the outside with you. Uh, you know outside. what? I bet we could definitely arrange for your uh, your kids to pet an alligator or, you know, a young one, right? We have the, and we, uh, well, in our, I should mention, we tape the snouts closed for all the educational yeah. interactions. So <laughs> that's another thing is that we have this down pat. We've been doing this for a while and, you know, uh, creating safe and mediated ways for people to engage with, you know, reptiles from around the world. That's our middle name. That's what we love to do. 